to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. finally doing it uh welcome to pod damn america Ka-ka, the stupid podcast for goth children or whatever i'm jake andersley is here andersley here i'm calling in from texas which is a very dumb place to be right now um i'm very hungover i'm in austin texas and i want to start off the episode today by telling you anders um and the audience here about a guy who uh is obsessed with me uh i could be anyone remember (laughs) there's a lot of them this is one of them do you remember when we talked about theo chino (laughs) oh yes (laughs) if you if you are a patreon listener we did an episode about just a a guy a gadfly in the left in new york in the dsa world he's a gadfly you know to a lot of people theo chino this guy paolo is He's Theochino to me, like specifically. <laughs> he is my own personal Theochino. <laughs> like uh, a la my own personal Jesus or whatever. <laughs> um for years since we've been doing this show, I don't know how the hell this guy is aware of me. I guess you know we're we're a, people know who we are. I forget that sometimes. Uh don't consider myself to be famous. Maybe we're more infamous than anything. But he's aware of who I am, and he hangs out at every bar in Bushwick. And it's, I would go to Cobra Club, which was my local, uh, right before I, I moved away Dumb. last week. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's over by 538. Um, and he would lock eyes with me from across the bar and come and start yelling at me. Uh, the first time he ever did it, it was to accuse me of being pro-police union because I am pro-union, because I am a socialist. And wow, got you there. <laughs> yeah. And I, uh, I like, it was, like, to the extent that I, like, I kind of, like, looked at the bouncer, like, are you, should we, <laughs> like, I think this guy's going to fight me, like, <laughs> but he just, um, he just drinks a lot, and that's, Saying something coming from old Jackie Flowers, let me tell you, uh, <laughs> you know, class houses. But he's like, it, it's to a point where like I would go to like Three Diamond Door and I would see him and I would see him see me like from across the bar. Oh, and I'd be like, let's go to a different bar because this guy is going to come do this crazy thing where he yells at me about something he made up or whatever. And I was on a fucking Tinder date one time oh, and no. he was there. It was I was like yo pretend like like we're just in like a really intense conversation because <laughs> this I, i'd seen him kind of walk by me and it was like you know uh t-rex going by you where you hold still or whatever <laughs> fucking lunatic paolo i had to block yeah. him on twitter this week because his 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 new thing and by the way i was side sidebar to this story um or whatever so that's what i want to insert here <sighs> He he would revolve is the thing is he would scream at me and then he would be like, 
you know, man, we're not so different. And he would want to have a beer and hang out and talk about how much we have in common. Um, and then he would, the next time, I'd be like, okay, you know what, Paolo, you're all right, man. It's crazy. Sometimes we get heated. We're political guys, you know, whatever, dude. Uh, and then we'd like, we'd, we'd bury the hatchet. I would just do this because he was annoying me. Like I went to a bar to, I used to go to the bars to read all the time, you know, but, uh, he would eventually, he would show up and he would annoy me and I'd be like, okay, all right. Hey man, you want to, you want to bury the hatchet? Cool. But it, it went in a circle and he would get, then he would start yelling at me again. And the last time he did, it was on Twitter, which is, it's weird. He doesn't even follow me, you know, but I guess it's like, you see people you don't follow. Right. And he was, I was saying, because all this is popping off and I like, I'm interested in politics clearly <laughs> you know i'm not like a politician i'm a comedian i i do this show i hope people understand i i started podcasting personally this is where i'm coming from because i wanted to learn more not because i thought i had a lot like i'm an authority on anything this is a, a study group you know yeah um so when something like this happens a lot of times i like to ask hey everyone what are we reading what's the thing that you th that will help with understanding what's happening and i was thinking about hamas a lot uh and i was like you know what i would like to read more so i understand on my socialist political podcast this issue because it's part of this and i you know i know shit about israel and palestine i don't know much about fucking specifically hamas and they're going to be a very politicized thing. You know, the, the United States is calling them ISIS and stuff. And so he accused me because I asked what a good thing to read about Hamas is. He was like, you're talking about this issue and you don't even know what Hamas is. <laughs> As if I was like, I want to read a book about this because I literally don't know what it is. You know what I mean? Like, Hamas you can Google Hamas, you know, yeah. but I was saying, no, I want to like further research a thing so that my brain is bigger, <laughs> you know, um, and he, uh, he, he kind of went crazy on me. So I had to block him. Sorry. So, RIP. I'm sure yeah. he's listening. <laughs> I remember, see, I, I vaguely remember hearing about this guy in sort of the early days of, uh, North Brooklyn DSA, but I was refreshed my memory again because um recently this is like about a month ago he was in a spat with somebody on twitter over uh he accused a dsa member who showed up at a picket line of wearing a scab jacket uh and his rationale <laughs> was there was no visible union bug on the jacket and i, I have to uh, find who this was but she she looked inside the jacket and the bug was inside the jacket. And he said, it's not a real union bug because everyone knows that only real union bugs are on the exterior of jackets. <laughs> As if that's just like a union law that, yeah. of course, anybody who knows about labor unions and or Hamas knows that union bugs go on the outside of jackets. What if it's reversible, huh? Yeah. But, How's that uh, work? Does uh, he? Because I've seen his uh, Twitter profile, and he has the Hunter S. Thompson glasses with like the yellow tints in the yeah. picture. Does he wear those all the time in real life? I think sometimes he he, he looks like that, <laughs> but I definitely he doesn't wear them sometimes because I definitely it's the eyes, man. <laughs> like I see him from across bars, and it's he gets that he gets very weird in the eyes when he sees me. 
You know what um, we're going to do is because Theo Chino has been asking to come on the show. <laughs> I want to have him on. Um, and then we bring Paolo on, too. Yes. And then we just leave and let them yeah. duke it out and record all of it. Oh, man. What? Who? Who is making counterfeit Union jackets? <laughs> this is the weirdest grift in the world. Yeah, I mean, <sighs> I see, I, I get that, like, you know, people thrift and get, you know, janitor shirts or potentially Union merch and shit. And uh, maybe that's, I, I once witnessed someone be, be accused of stolen valor for that, but but I don't. I can't imagine anybody. Yeah, counterfeiting that. It's like there's not <laughs> enough of us for that to be a lucrative, you know, fucking grift. Yeah, I don't know, man. Well, anyway, uh, so I guess this is a noteful story because it tells you something, which is that people are losing their goddamn motherfucking minds, right? Because we are uh, in what feels very much like and which we will discuss later kind of a a post 9-11 week type week right now uh because of what happened in palestine uh uh i don't even know where to start dude like i know i have a bad habit of being online all the fucking time and uh it's worse during stuff like this and i've been glued to twitter just morbidly because um you're watching you know consent be manufactured in real time and a part of that now that we live in the social media era is just celebrities just being the dumbest fucking people on earth that's the thing i can't stop gawking at uh (laughs) Like the Mark Hamill, you know, just liberal posters of the world who were just immediately I stand with Israel or whatever. Yeah. Uh, One of the ones that I kind of fixate on is Amy Schumer because she's just always wrong and it's kind of incredible. Uh, Credit to comic, very funny dude, Gianmarco Ceresi for dunking on her for this. Uh just his tweet just says this shit is insane and then in all caps insane <laughs> with a bunch of exclamation points there's you don't it's one of those things that's so insanely dumb you don't even really need to make another joke about it it's kind of like trump you know you just sort of post it and go what the fuck and everyone's like yeah she posted a meme from something called at living jewishly it's a star of david and inside the Star of David, it says, first they came for the LGBTQ. Mm. And I stood up because love is love. And then they came for immigrants. And I stood up because families belong together. Then they came for the black community. Wow. <laughs> uh, capital B, black community. And I stood up because black lives matter. Then they came for me, but I stood alone because I am a Jew. <laughs> uh. What the fuck? What? <laughs> <laughs> and he tweeted later he said uh what about when they get, came for the palestinians amy which is well said but um yeah i don't that, that it's really i guess an incredible meme to me because it doesn't even betray like an ideology really it literally is just the these were the the things that you changed your your profile picture to i support yeah, in, a, in order, <laughs> like for the last couple of years. I mean, I think what we are witnessing is the end of Trump era liberalism. 
Because yeah. that was a time when people took it upon themselves as if, you know, it was like a responsibility um, and their individual voice was, you know, extraordinarily important. And just the act of speaking against uh, hatred and bigotry was, you know, the paramount political act. And it would be to protest things like the Muslim ban. Uh, which now it seems like all of those same people have completely reversed on. The same people who are protesting a Muslim ban are now, in many cases, rationalizing, justifying the slaughter of, of Palestinians. Um, yeah, we're, we're entering a new paradigm of, of liberalism. It's not quite clear where it is yet and how identity fits into it, but I think it's going to be a little less uh, generous, perhaps, than it was uh, during those four years with the with the orange man in charge. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I know we just keep harping on this point, but, it, you know, it feels a lot like the Bush era. But something that was different then is that, um, you know, after 9-11, 9-11 happened and then somehow it the the idea became, oh, that happened because of radical Islam that it was religiously motivated and then that created a nice um scapegoat and everyone got really racist towards brown people and uh that's that was a dark time to live through it was very scary and racist and vicious and there was bloodthirst and that's still happening but the liberals that are that are turning war hockey right now uh it's like they're making it more about supporting israel which is de facto attacking palestine and attacking palestinians and sort of doing this thing with you know hamas and comparing them to isis and stuff like that but it's it, it if you i i feel like they're gonna just sort of act like those people are not people like they just don't exist right you know it's the f- the focus the premium is going to be on look how good of a person i am i support the thing and the thing is israel because they were attacked uh I'm, i guess i'm maybe maybe i'm going to eat my words here I'm, I'm predicting this somehow gets less racist i think it's just a different kind of racist is what i'm getting at yeah yeah i don't it's- know Merely a prediction of whatever the fuck dumb shit is coming down the pike now, you know? Yeah. Well, if you remember, you know, before, right before the Trump era, I was just thinking about this. And I remember just being kind of appalled watching Bill Maher, which is like the natural uh, response to anything on that show. But I remember specifically Josh Gad, who, you know, was like on the Book of Mormon and is just kind of funny comedian performer who was like, um, you know, uh, seen as kind of liberal who's on the daily show. Uh, and he was on a panel. It wasn't just him saying this, but he was going along with the, the constant Bill Maher refrain that, you know, there's something wrong with the Muslim world. There's something wicked going on. These guys are, um, the, the point they were making at the time was that they're not assimilating to American society. And I remember him, going along with that and it's just kind of disgusting um in a way that you know that as late as like 2015 that was 
acceptable in liberal circles. And then very quickly, Trump gets elected and immediately Muslims are our friends because of this guy. And now I think it is turning back. There is just kind of a weird contradiction where you can catch someone in, you know, being very hypocritical about this because they're like these two things advantage them in in different times and in different ways. Being a weird uh, atheist, new atheist. I say this as someone who firmly believes there's no God. Like I'm technically an atheist, but the the new atheist mentality of like, oh, you know, you you guys are too nice to to Islam and Islam's bad because it's a religion uh is is contradictory to the liberal like um you know i i I stand with uh brown people or whatever because trump bad um i something's kind of interesting about this i think that it's very reductive to look at it in terms of religion and the dumbest people i've ever met are on my facebook friends list because i was a comedian and traveled around and met a bunch of people that think stand-up comedy is a cool thing to do with your time um, so a lot of what I'm seeing from people is, you know, what, what we, uh, what's the phrase, uh, what no theory does to a motherfucker, no, what no material analysis does to a motherfucker, an idealist argument that this is somehow motivated entirely by, you know, um, the, the ideologies of the three fucking, uh, Abrahamic religions or whatever the fuck they're called Christianity islam judaism and that uh this is happening because islam is a certain way and what's driving me insane about this is that first of all it's just this is happening for historical reasons everything happens for historical reasons that's why marxism is fucking unbeatable in explaining stuff like this uh you know there's a whole fucking story you can go read it i'm reading a great book right now 100 years war on palestine it explains it pretty flat out uh the state was created british people didn't want jews immigrating they said hey we'll give you a state over here on top of fucking palestine and then you know expansion and colonial shit happened Mm. uh that created everything that led to what's happening today um but i what i've been thinking about with the religious thing is that like i'm sorry i know we're not gonna get into the weeds on like hamas or whatever but you know when you have like like far right radical uh religious groups in power and they become your entire view of what that religion is that happened because there was a power vacuum like these play radical fucking groups don't come from nowhere they come from the actions of the goddamn united states yeah we create space for those those ideologies to take hold and become like authoritarian and become like to, 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 to dominate, you know, a place that's fucking like just completely in shambles. Uh, and then we call that a representation of, of Islam, like in general. And it's just like fucking grow up and live a little, you will meet a lot of different religious people throughout your life. Some of them take it in that direction and some of them, I mean, you can go fucking all the way in the other direction and, you know, there's like, uh, what do you call it? Liberation theology. That's far left mm-hmm. religious shit. There's other people for whom it, I don't know, lands somewhere in the center of the road. And I say this as a guy who used to be like a young, angry atheist, you know, oh, there's no God and I'm a goth and I put an upside down cross in my house and shit. It's not, it's not driving all this stuff. It's yeah. just the backdrop to a lot of it. 
Right. Well, Sam Harris and you know the new, new atheists, they, they're famous for saying that Islam is the mother load of bad ideas. And, you know, you can compare the Quran to the Bible and there's a lot of stuff you can take in zany directions in all of these religious texts. But, but they never ask, you know, they always will say, oh, well, we have to separate the people from the religion and they're getting the bad ideas from the religion. I don't think you can make that separation, like where they just it comes the where does the where do these religious texts come from just from on high they're dropped down from the sky and they pollute people's minds like no uh there's a historical context for why people interpret things in a, a particular way uh and you know it, it just it does redound ultimately to racism which is the thing they try to try to avoid taking accountability for but uh that's what it is and we're, we're seeing it make a comeback yeah, no, totally. And also, you know, it's fucking everything I just said about the spectrum of religion. Same goes for Jews, because like, I mean, I'm we're preaching to the choir and our own audience here or whatever. Sure, this doesn't bear, bear, need to bear repeating or whatever. But like Zionism and being a Jew are not the same fucking thing either. You know, right. and it's, it's anti-Semitic to actually equate those things. It's anti-Semitic when the Jewish people do that. Because they're they're being a dick to other Jews by saying you're not a Jew unless you're part of this political project, right? And you know I've been saying that same thing for for a long time, but it was really only the past few years that I came to realize how true it is on a fundamental level. Like how many Jews at the time uh, Israel was being founded were not about it and didn't want it, and how many are anti-Zionist, which is not to, to endorse everything else they necessarily believe. Uh, but there are anti-Zionist Jews in Israel who get harassed by the IDF. There are anti-Zionist Jews in New York. Um, and as well, there were a lot of Jewish young men who were kind of sent to Israel under pretty shitty circumstances to build the society. Uh, and as well, you have Sephardic Jews from places like Yemen who were just like picked up and plopped in the middle of Israel and are treated like you know, second-class citizens in a lot of ways. Like, there's a racial hierarchy that includes Jews as well in, in Israel. Yeah, you know, something's really interesting to me that I've been seeing all week is uh, that Haaretz, I don't know how to fucking pronounce this, sorry. Haaretz, uh, yeah. The, the, the newspaper in Israel has been reporting, like, pretty fairly about what's happening. And it's kind of reminding me of, like, living in the united states during the fucking iraq war when we had i mean at first everyone was all like you have to support the war but after a while it became kind of okay to to talk about how it was fucked up and uh you know that you re you realize when you look at this stuff from a bird's eye view that equating people who live somewhere and their fucking government is stupid we all had trump as the president for four fucking years i mean mm -hmm. At any point during that, were you like, would you consider it fair for someone to be like, wow, you guys are all that guy? You know what I mean? <laughs> and his political project. But clearly, uh, you know, uh, populists in the, in the fucking state are, are, are not inherently like linked and motivated in the same way and stuff. It's just, it's just fucking people. Right. Um, <sighs> I'm sorry. This was supposed to be the funny part of the show. Right now. I'm just mad. Well, I do have a couple. Let's get Paolo in here. <laughs> well, you know what? Actually, this is we we have you know we talk about cranks like Paolo and Theo, and it seems like they're never going to be in a position of power really. But there are a couple guys in the United States Congress who are the closest thing to DSA cranks. Actually, one 
was a DSA crank, basically, who got elected to Congress, uh, Shri Thanadar, um, who is from Michigan. He's a businessman who is like 70 years old and has a wig that or just dyes his hair very blatantly. And uh, he was a DSA member uh, until recently. The DSA out in Detroit area did not endorse him because he's wacky. He's all over the place. He, he supported Marco Rubio for a time. He's just kind of a <laughs> weird guy uh, who says some progressive things. And so for political expedience reasons, he, he joined DSA. But he was expelled um, after he palled around with Modi. I believe he like helped give Modi – he walked around with Modi – uh, and they were like, this is not acceptable for a socialist to be hanging out with someone like Narendra Modi. Uh, so he got expelled. However, he uh, waited till this past week to renounce his membership in DSA because of the uh, statements in solidarity with Palestine. Um, and wouldn't you know it, one of his staffers, his former comms director, released a thread a few days ago on Twitter about working with Shri. Uh, apparently, <laughs> wouldn't you know it, he does not have the best constituent services. And Rashida Tlaib actually said that she has to pick up his slack. Like people from his district will call her office because he is busy posting memes. Uh, and <laughs> he's, he, he's absent from his job. Um and this staffer says that the first thing Shri did when he got elected, they had a meeting and he said, I don't care about policies or legislation right now. I just need you to focus on my reelection, which is not what you're supposed to do when you're a member of Congress, at least in, you know, at first, at least try to do the job a little bit. I feel like that's like something somebody would say on like The Wire or something. Right. <laughs> you know, one of those dramas where it's all being presented very cynically. Yeah. If this guy was written in one of those shows, they'd, they'd be, they would have to cut him because he would be too absurd. Um, <laughs> but he would use... It would seem hacky, yeah. Yeah. They would use his official office e-newsletters for campaign emails, which is uh, not allowed. Um, there's some legal problems with that. Uh, a lot of the staff would quit. Uh, at one point, there were five people on his staff, which is very small. And he would just say really inappropriate things. They went to an event at a church in Detroit and there were some black guys just outside. And he looks over to the staffer, Shri does, and says, will you take a bullet for me? (laughs) (laughs) That's so fucking funny. And his staffer, uh, Adam Abuzala, responds, absolutely not. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. She gets furious. Uh, He had a hard time (laughs) trusting black women. He would hire them for deputy positions, and then he wouldn't promote them and give the jobs to white guys. Uh, And then he was obsessed with Rashida Tlaib and AOC, and he would call (laughs) past midnight his staffer. He would call past midnight to ask his comms director, why does... AOC have over 10 million followers and I only have 3,000. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder why. <laughs> what do you mean, dude? <laughs> um, Are you the youngest woman in Congress? <laughs> you know? It was like a whole thing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, uh, my God. 
and he apparently he went to the southern border <laughs> and he was started like saying the same things republican and i think this guy just genuinely does not understand american politics like he hasn't just sat down to figure out who stands for what because he started using republican talking points and then the staffer had to be like that's not what you're supposed to say that's not what democrats believe and he said okay well then just tell me what the democrats would like to hear (laughs) i mean that is kind of beautiful because it really just boils everything down to what's actually happening when you're in politics yeah like um he's like um there's an archetype of a character who's who's too dumb to to not just say it out loud like that you know Mm -hmm. he reminds me of a couple people in my life that you know what i'm not even gonna drop these names right now (laughs) this is is already too volatile of a topic (laughs) um but lastly on this guy so he is wealthy and the way he made his money apparently was by running an animal testing facility that had uh over a (laughs) hundred monkeys and dogs have to had to get <laughs> rescued from it after it like shut down uh oh yeah <laughs> yeah it's fucked i can't up. sometimes i can't believe people don't aren't interested in politics because it's just it's so fucking cool yeah <laughs> it's so funny there's just such weird guys in it, you know <laughs> yes speaking of which and uh i i think this is i have a a suggestion here so George Santos, also in the news this week, he was (laughs) carrying around a baby uh, outside of his office. He was asked, is that your baby? His response, (laughs) not yet. Weirdest answer ever. (laughs) What does that mean? (laughs) Is he adopting it? Well, why does he already have it? (laughs) The fuck does that mean? Yeah. But he was uh, asked, rightly, by Jewish Voice for Peace, activist about uh palestinians what he's going to do to try and um prevent mass slaughter and he's like i have a baby in my hand sir (laughs) (laughs) oh that's actually a brilliant if you don't want to move if you don't want to talk about something right yeah can't you see i have a baby right now (laughs) (laughs) yeah and he was screaming he's like security get this man out of here he was accosting me while i was holding a baby (laughs) That's like a specific law and like under the penal code where you can't talk to someone if they're holding a baby. Uh, (laughs) But I have my suggestion is so 2024 elections coming up. There's a lot of, you know, question marks as to what the total landscape is going to be as far as independence in third parties. No labels has been around for a while. They want to run a moderate campaign. And there's been an idea for a while now. I remember in 2008, there's this idea called Unity 08, where they're going to have a uh, both made the the nominees were going to be from different parties. So the president and vice president, you're going to have a Democrat and a Republican. Uh, and I think for 2024, they should go with Sri Thanadar and George Santos. Yeah. Or Paolo and Theo. Hey, or Paolo and Theo. The yeah. Paolo worked for the Democrats. Uh, but he uh, he quit or something. I don't know. He told me all all of this at some point while I was staring into a beer and trying not to listen. Yeah, <laughs> no, I but think he... I saw a tweet about it. Is he has a nonprofit organization that's one of those things. It's like we recruit first generation immigrants who are 
Aquariuses or something uh, to run in rural areas where the population is right. That was his thing. He was always upstate. He was involved in that shit in Buffalo when uh, they they nuked that socialist mayor. Oh, that Uh, fuck man. I think I think so. He also one night was one of his drunk ass things was that I should run for office and that he would like manage (laughs) which (laughs) which, uh, I don't want to. You know, I don't want to uh, leak any info, but we're working on it. Yeah, it's in the works. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess we announced it at the show. <laughs> well, the but he was serious. <laughs> Jake Flores, Fucking... Libertarian candidate, twenty twenty four. Which um, is it was just crazy that he suggested that because he also hates me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he sees an opportunity, he takes it. Uh, but apparently, so. his nonprofit is just him. Of course, it is. It's just a one man band. <laughs> I don't. I I bet none of this ever happened. I mean, he never worked for the Democrats or went upstate. You know, this is just a lunatic in a bar. Yeah. <sighs> oh boy. Well, <laughs> all kinds of all kinds of wackos this week. That was the fun portion. That was actually. I, I needed a good laugh. That yeah. was a good time. <laughs> right, folks. We got to laugh. All right. <laughs> <laughs> World War Three is popping off again. I know I always say that, but a war is for sure happening. They're using the word war. Yeah, uh, it's, it's bad. You're right. Yeah, at this point, it's um, looking pretty one sided. It's very sad. I'm uh, trying to. It's fucked up, actually, to even call this a war because as uh, yeah. You know, comic Ashley Ray is very funny. Uh-huh. She said uh, uh, something very, very well put, very poignant the other day, which is uh, there are a lot of wars where one side can turn the other side's electricity and water off, you know? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. It's um, a slaughter. Uh, trying to pivot here. It's difficult. But um, <laughs> if I, I mean, I was thinking about this in terms we had. You know, a lot has happened over the past couple of weeks, and uh, we commemorated a guest on the show a little while ago uh, who passed on, Ryan Carson. And just, you know, yesterday I was just thinking about how all the grief and support um, and tributes to him that were coming out, just imagining that um, compounded by what could be up to a million people is a bit hard to comprehend. And, uh, that's what you know we're we're facing down is is mass killing um yeah. in Gaza um i went to a demonstration last night that wound up in front of Schumer's house and um it seems like a lot of people are very upset about it in in New York and uh are willing to do what they can and that's that's an inspiring thing but uh we wanted to talk to a Palestinian about this uh, issue. Um, we have a, a guest who is a, a writer. Uh, she's an organizer and um, really uh, illuminated uh, this whole conflict and um, occupation for us in a way that was pretty helpful. So um, let's go now to our interview with our, our friend and comrade Layla. All right, we are now joined by Layla Al-Sheikh. Layla, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And uh, we're speaking now on Saturday, 
Um, you know, there's a, a lot that's that's happening. Uh, I wonder if we could start just by um, talking about what if there's any updates. What the latest uh, situation now is is on the ground in in Gaza. Uh, so yeah, we're one week into this crisis that's been unfolding in Israel Palestine, and at the moment, as far as anyone in the public view can tell. Uh, the Israelis are preparing for what will likely be a months-long ground incursion into the northern end of the Gaza Strip, which comprises the entirety of Gaza City, where more than half of all Gazans live. Uh, it was thought that they would begin their incursion by now of recording, but uh, whether due to behind-the-scenes pressure to delay or due to internal uh, incohesion from the Israeli government, they have not yet done so. Uh, some Gazans are fleeing to the southern end of the Strip, and others are refusing to do so. So at the moment, we're looking at a precipice of sorts, um, and we're all sort of holding our breath. Mm, yeah, and Thursday night, of course, there was a 24-hour evacuation warning. Um, as you mentioned, some people are going to the southern border, which I believe uh, is, is, goes up against Egypt. Um, what, what's happened with that warning? Has anyone actually been evacuated? And uh, why, why did they issue that warning when, as the UN reported, it's, it's physically impossible to, to get a million people safely out in that time period? As far as I know, and um, I've been trying to keep track of both the Gazans themselves who are native to the Strip and foreigners who live there for a variety of reasons, um, as far as I know, the only people who have been evacuated to the southern end and out of the Strip entirely are American nationals, and I believe some other European nationals have been allowed through the Rafa crossing, which does uh, border Egypt into the Sinai. Um, other than that, it does not seem clear that a substantial amount of people have been allowed to evacuate into the Strip's southern end. One of the, uh, I would say, more insidious things about the evacuation order is that mere hours after the Israelis communicated this order, uh, airstrikes actually hit one of the main roads that allows people to evacuate to the southern end and so many people are physically incapable of doing so uh you may have seen and some of the listeners may have seen that there was also an evacuation order ordered to al-alda hospital um which is like you said it's physically impossible to evacuate a million people it is also physically impossible to evacuate an entire hospital within mere hours without people dying you're, you're essentially uh, forcing doctors to make a choice on who to allow to live and who to die, which is an impossible scenario to make someone do. It's a crime against humanity. Uh, as to why they provided this evacuation order, despite it being essentially impossible, the Israelis, despite clearly doing something that is illegal, despite the siege itself being illegal, they are still sensitive to some degree when it comes to public perception, when it comes to uh, a thin veneer of adherence to international law. But we all know that 
an evacuation order does not preclude an army from committing mass atrocities. And when an evacuation order is issued like this, what we're essentially going to see is a mass exodus of, and mass displacement. And for us, in all likelihood, a second Nakba, where Gazans wouldn't be allowed to return home, if there will be a home to return to in the first place. Um, now, one of the, the things I've heard, and this is kind of a rumor, but uh, Israel is amassing troops near their border with Gaza. Um, but something I've heard is that they're not actually going to invade, that this is sort of a bluff. Um, do you think they are actually going to send people in, or is this going to be strictly a, a bombing campaign? Uh, I am under the impression, uh, and of course I am not privy to uh, what might be private information that the State Department might have or that other diplomats might have, but I'm under the impression that this time it is not a bluff. Um, a lot of people have written excellent reporting on the temperament of the Israeli government uh, and its leadership. In particular, Netanyahu is someone who historically has been squeamish about ground invasions, about putting massive amounts of Israeli soldiers in a direct line of fire. They much prefer, uh, he would much prefer a precision campaign or an airstrike campaign. And he resisted calls in 2014 from rightward parties uh, to incur into Gaza. But this time around, the situation is obviously very different. Israeli civilians were killed um, and cities were taken for a brief period of time. This is a public humiliation. It's a psychological issue for a lot of Israelis. And so that in conjunction with the fact that the Israeli right wing, or rather the far right wing, is much stronger this time around. They have ministries in government. They have a substantially larger amount of seats in the Knesset. Um, it's unlikely that he would be able to survive a the choice of not invading the Gaza Strip. So I do not think it is a bluff. God willing, it is, and God willing, they do not actually invade. But at the present moment, I think we can't expect that they will incur in some way. And, and going back to this uh, offensive, which began a week ago now, um, how did it happen in the first place, and, and why didn't Netanyahu and the Israeli government at large see it coming? As you know, unless I don't know if we believe the theory that they did and let it happen, uh, but assuming they didn't, how did this how did this come about? Um, I think that uh, I want to say that the New Yorker did a wonderful piece uh, with uh, Chaudhonair and. Tarika Bakoni, who is an analyst from Gaza, where they talked about the uh, ways in which this came about and what it'll mean for the future. And one of the things that I think Tarika Bakoni gets correct is that a lot of the hubris and arrogance of the idea of maintaining the status quo, of maintaining the occupation and the siege allowed for a breakdown in intelligence gathering in military preparedness, and in political uh, foresight for the Israelis. Um, something that's not still not very clear. It seems as if, as if Iran was not aware that this would occur. 
it seems as if Hezbollah was not really aware that this would occur. Something that seems to be the case is that this was a coordinated campaign conducted by Hamas's military wing, not the political bureau, in conjunction with other armed factions in Palestinian civil society. And uh, I have heard reports, and I think you guys have as well, of Egypt warning uh, Tel Aviv, and I think the United States also may have warned Tel Aviv, and nothing had occurred. Um, Insofar as that might be true, I think one of the things that definitely contributed to this campaign's shocking success in terms of military terms for the uh, armed factions in Gaza is that over half, I think close to 70 or 75% of the troops who would regularly be stationed on the southern end of the Israeli border were in the West Bank, uh, appeasing the far-right ministers of government, Smotrich and Benvir, who wanted to go out and gallivant and have their uh, religious holiday parties. But they were there protecting them in the settler enterprise. And so I think hubris is perhaps the primary explainer as to why the government did not see this coming. Right. And, you know, something I want to address that we see a lot on on social media, uh, something I've said is that, you know, this situation is not complicated. And I think that is fundamentally true. The power dynamic between Israel and the Palestinians is not complicated. Uh, However, they're the history, the geography, the internal politics of Israel and the Palestinian territories, they, they, they all are fairly complicated. And I want to make sure our, our listeners have uh, a fairly thorough understanding of, of the situation. So um, one of the issues, I think, with what's being proposed as a two-state solution is the Palestinian territories, and a lot of Americans may not know this, are literally not connected. The Gaza Strip is on one side, and then uh, Israel's between Gaza and the West Bank, um, which have very different sort of, uh, you know, political compositions in each place. Uh, can you speak to what, you know, you mentioned Hamas is part of a, a coalition. There's different factions in Gaza. Can you speak to the composition of the Gaza Strip and the political factions there and uh, compare it to to the West Bank? Yes, absolutely. Um, something that I think is sorely lacking in Western media analysis in the last week is that despite Hamas being the, let's say, ruling party in Gaza, uh, Hamas is not the only political faction in Gaza. Uh, There's also the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. There is uh, other minor groups which don't necessarily have power in Gaza, but which have staying influence over segments of Palestinian civil society across both segmented portions, like the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, uh, the Lions Den, which is specifically in the West Bank, and so on. Um, there was a, I believe a poll came out this morning. Uh, I'll have to look at it again soon to re-verify, but off the top of my head, I believe more than a half of the Gazans polled uh, opposed a breaking of the ceasefire between the Gaza Strip and the Israeli forces. But at the same time, many Gazans expressed positive sentiment about uh, a variety of these factions, Hamas, the Islamic Jihad, 
um, the Lion's Den in particular receives uh, a lot of positive attention from Gazans. And this is for a variety of reasons. Uh, when asked about how we might compare the way that civil society is uh, reflected in politics between the West Bank and Gaza, something that's common across both strands is that Palestinians are frustrated with this myopia that has overtaken the Palestinian Authority. Uh, the Authority is effectively not in control of any of the territories that are formally given to it by Oslo. Uh, that is the Oslo Accords. Uh, they cannot stop settlers from committing pogroms. They cannot st stop the Israeli army from committing any sorts of atro atrocities. Um, and so armed groups like the Lion's Den, which is specifically in Jenin, or Hamas in the Gaza Strip, which engage in military struggle and also indiscriminate attacks at the same time, gain prominence. Um, one of the reasons this attack happened in the first place, this incursion into southern Israel happened in the first place, is because it allows for Hamas and the other groups to present an alternative vision to the failing authority in Ramallah. Um, this doesn't mean that there are not any Gazans who do not support this. Uh, in fact, as I've said, more than half seem to have not wanted this ceasefire to have broken. Um, but the complexity of the political situation has not even been broached in Western media. And this is only the surface level, I would say. Right. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, it seems like one of the major differences between the West Bank and Gaza is, is there's just a ton more uh, settlements, Israeli settlements in the West Bank, uh, few if any in, in Gaza Strip, uh, as far as I'm aware. Um, but what is the situation now like for Palestinians in the West Bank? Do they have cause for concern? Yes, um, you're correct that there are no settlements. Uh, there are no formal settlements in the West in the Gaza Strip anymore since the uh, 2005 withdrawal. However, the Israeli government did, uh, I want to say, a couple of months ago, repeal a law that formally barred it from ever happening again in the Gaza Strip. Mm. Um, and so, the possibilities of settlers returning there is open. And that's a massive psychological wound for the far right in Israel. That's something that motivates a lot of the rhetoric that you might see from Hebrew language media in the last week. But as for the West Bank, um, as for the West Bank, the situation is extremely hot. Uh, I think that only Israeli and Palestinian newspapers have really been covering that. Uh, I may have seen a report a couple hours ago from the Washington Post about it, which is good, but insufficient. Um, I believe as of right now, over 50 Palestinians in the West Bank have been killed since last Saturday um, due to settler attacks, due to military uh, incompetence, due to the uh, far-right arming settlers. Over a thousand weapons were distributed by Ben Vier. Uh, as far as I remember, um, and two villages, at least two villages, specifically Al-Kanub and Wadi Al-Sikh, have both been depopulated. And medical personnel have been uh, suffering gunfire when they try to reach these villages. Um, the West Bank situation is a tinderbox. Uh, it is already exploding, and if 
the United States. And if the international community does not intervene at some point, then what has occurred in Gaza could very well ignite across the entire region between the river and the sea. I read something uh, this week. I'm not sure how how true it is or how it factors into this, but I wanted to run it by you. Um, apparently, I read this in Current Affairs. They cited it from WikiLeaks. Uh, they said they had um, like audio or something of Netanyahu saying that he wanted to fund Hamas in order to, to create a division between Gaza and the West Bank. Do you think that's true? Oh, no, it's, uh, it is absolutely true. It's been reported by both uh, American and Israeli media. Uh, even the, I would say, I would personally say far right, but may, maybe some listeners might scan it differently. Uh, the far right Israeli newspaper, the Jerusalem Post, has reported on this uh, as recently as 2019. Netanyahu has a long history of seeking to corral his Likud supporters into this triangulation strategy, uh, primarily with regards to allowing Qatar to continue to fund the political machinations of Hamas in the Gaza Strip, specifically because the Israelis benefit without a Palestinian government that is united. Um, If the PLO and Hamas continue to be fragmented, it is much easier to present yourself to the international community by saying that there is no one to negotiate with. There's no one to create a peace deal with. Why should we even be concerned with this? There's a radical Islamist group on the one hand and an incompetent authority on the other. Um, So this long history of fragmentation, purposeful fragmentation by the Israelis is well-documented. So it's absolutely true, in my opinion. Okay, that makes sense, yeah. Well, on the subject of of Netanyahu, uh, it doesn't seem that long ago that he was in office and was, you know, going to have to leave office. And then, uh, lo and behold, he he makes a miraculous comeback and he's back in power. Um, Is this, though, the the beginning of the end for his his reign in, in Israel? I think it's too early to say anything. Unfortunately, uh, many said this during uh, 2021. Many said this during 2014. Um, And it has been shown time and time again that Netanyahu has a remarkable resilience. But one of the things that may give us hope if one is looking for the collapse of this uh, Likud domination since the 1990s is that we have historical parallels and we have evidence, uh, data, that is. Um, the historical parallels are striking. Uh, last week, the day that the incursion began, was the 50th anniversary to the day of the beginning of the 1973 war, the Yom Kippur War, between Egypt and the Israelis, which was also a surprise incursion by the Egyptians. Um, the psychological effect of that surprise incursion uh, was incredible on the Israeli citizenry. And as a result, it started the downturn of Israeli labor. Uh, they would never really recover from that. To this day, they perhaps have never really truly recovered from the shock of 1973. And parallel to that, Netanyahu has been hailed as this security prime minister, someone who has been hammering home that he secures the livelihoods of Israelis 
by managing the status quo. And that has been broken. Uh, this is the, from as far as I can tell, this is the deadliest attack on Jewish life since 1945, on Jewish civilian life anyway. Um, and that will be with Israelis for a long time. And evidence, the data suggests that I think 58% of Israeli voters, according to the polls that have released so far, lay the blame squarely on Netanyahu. And nearly 98% say that the Israelis failed in their intelligence capacity. The Israeli government, that has failed in their intelligence capacity to stop this incursion from happening. Um, protests are occurring. Uh, you see people on the streets of Tel Aviv and Jerusalem uh, holding signs and delivering fiery speeches. Um, and to his minimal credit, Yair Lapid has refused to join this uh, quickly cobbled together unity government that Gantz and Netanyahu have formed. So it is very possible that he will not survive after the war concludes. Mm. Now, I also want to mention, too, that meanwhile, there are uh, border clashes happening between the IDF and, and Hezbollah, um, which is, is in Lebanon. Uh, what's the reason for this? And is there a chance that this war will spill over into Lebanon and perhaps the uh, Golan Heights, which is north uh, there as well, kind of near Syria? Uh, yes. Um, I think that the like as of right now, it has belonged, has little interest of joining the war. Um, but if this ground incursion goes ahead, and if it lasts for as long as many expect it to, which is uh, months on end, possibly into the new year, then the chances of Hezbollah having to engage in some way skyrocket. Um, they understand the political calculus, uh, but they also understand the military calculus. Despite Israel being disappointed in its performance in the last war in Lebanon against Hezbollah, uh, the Lebanese still suffered massive uh, infrastructural and civilian damage. And Hezbollah wants to maintain its relative support in Lebanese society, which has declined over time for a variety of reasons. And if it were to engage in a haphazard and poorly planned attack against Israelis and it backfires, then it would damage their standing. Insofar as the Golan Heights are concerned, which is occupied territory, it's Syrian territory, um, which the United States wrongfully recognized as Israeli territory during the Trump administration, um, I don't think there are very many indications that the Druze and that the, and the Israelis will come into inter-ethnic conflict over this, but uh, it's something to keep an eye on. Um, I'm unfortunately not in, as in tuned into the situation in the Golan. Well, turning uh, to the United States and our government's response, the State Department, of course, released a memo that forbid the terms de-escalation and ceasefire. Uh, but despite that, Biden at least acknowledged that Palestinian civilians are, are dying and are going to die. Um, what do you attribute his comment to and uh, what leverage does he have as president that he should be using to minimize Palestinian death? Uh, well, uh, I will say personally, in my view, that the Blinken State Department 
has squandered this conflict since the very beginning of this presidency. Um, they have they have taken attack towards this conflict, which deprioritizes a political resolution between the Israelis and the Palestinians, and puts rapprochement between Saudis and uh, Egyptians and Qataris and so many more with the Israelis at the very top. Um, and that's a proven to have failed strategy that did not prevent this from occurring. Um, and now it seems to be reported that the Saudis are suspending normalization talks with the Israelis. Um, as for why Biden himself might be striking a different tone now, I think there are a variety of reasons. There's political considerations at home. Uh, despite the overwhelming public support for the Israeli government by both Democratic and Republican politicians, this is a new world where there are politicians willing to emphasize Palestinian humanity and willing to emphasize that the Israelis perpetuate a regime of apartheid over the Palestinian people. AOC, uh, Rashida Tlaib, of course, a Palestinian-American, Cory Bush, uh, even Jamal Bowman, who has had controversies back and forth, has been very forceful in the last couple of days. Um, polls have indicated since the beginning of the year that more and more people are sympathetic to the Palestinians than ever. So I think he has to consider how the public might respond to a uh, horrible scenario coming about and him not responding to that. Um, as for leverage, uh, I see a lot of people in, imply that there's not much we can do, but there is in fact a lot we can do. Uh, for one, we could cease in unconditional support entirely. That's currently the modus operandi of this government. Um, and what that would mean is conditioning the $4 billion a year we provide, the additional billions that we provide, um, the unlimited diplomatic support we provide at the UN, where we veto security resolutions regardless of its content, uh, which might demand something of the Israelis. Um, we can suspend our recently implemented visa waiver program agreement with the Israelis, which allow Israelis to come here without a visa and vice versa. Um, we can provide more aid to the Palestinians. We simply can. Uh, there is very little that Congress could do if the State Department wanted to allocate funds towards that. Um, there are a variety of things. Uh, people who say that we're incapable of doing so simply lack both the administrative and political imagination to see a different response coming to fruition. Yeah, we sanction people all the time. Yes, we certainly do. Uh, and in fact, we, um, despite, uh, as of now, I should say, I want to be clear that things are developing, despite not very strong evidence that uh, Iran may have been involved, we have quietly suspended our diplomatic deal with Iran that would release funds to them in exchange for the release of hostages. Um, so we're very clearly willing to walk back on our words on behalf of states that don't necessarily listen to us. Uh, I think we can, if we have the bravery, uh, do something correct for once instead. Well, you bring up, I, I should ask about that too, this, uh, 
this note that Iran is is somehow funding Hamas. That is a conspiracy theory, correct? And and, and what what utility does that have in all of this? Uh, no, I wouldn't say. Uh, well, to be more precise, perhaps I think uh, it is verifiably true that Iran has a deep relationship with Hamas. Um, but what is not true, as far as anyone can tell at the moment, is that Iran had anything to do substantially with this uh, decision to incur into southern Israel. Um, uh, the Wall Street Journal made that report in the early first two days that Iran had approved it and then walked it back. And then the United States and Israel both have said that there is not any strong evidence that Iran was uh, the director of this attack. So that we decided to uh, walk back on a diplomatic deal that we made with them showcases our priorities, I think. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, I want to ask about uh, American media coverage. There was a report yesterday in, in Semaphore that MSNBC has now moved three of its Muslim broadcasters out of the anchor chair uh, in the past week. Um, but at the same time, the Palestinian perspective has broken through cable news a few times that um, that we haven't seen in the same way in previous conflicts. I'm thinking of the interview Fareed Zakaria did, where he's kind of flummoxed when presented with the, the reality of the occupation. Uh, what do you make of American press coverage of, of this conflict? I must say I am shocked that uh, Zakaria had Mustafa Barghouti on during this um, during this crisis. Uh, I did not expect it. Uh, it was a good interview, I would say. Mustafa presented a good view. Um, more broadly, I would say that I'm, of course, very disappointed with how American media has uh, presented this conflict. Um, I hadn't actually seen the report from MS about MSNBC. That's uh, disappointing to hear. Um, Mehdi Hassan and uh, Ayman and I forget the other Ali Velshli. Uh, Ali Velshli. They all uh, they all provide important perspectives, and uh, if that is the case, that's a uh, horrible and Islamophobic and uh, racially choice decision from MSNBC. But I suppose we can't expect much from a not particularly liberal network in the first place. Um, right. On the flip side, though, despite the expected uh, shortcomings of American media, there have been some bright spots. The Washington Post has been uh, doing an excellent job of covering what is actually happening in Gaza, the extent to which uh, damage has been done, the extent to which families have been wiped out or separated. Um, there have been uh, excellent essays written in Jewish Currents, and in dissent on how the United States uh, should respond, how the left in the United States should respond, how Jews should respond. Um, and I think uh, someone pointed out to me yesterday while uh, in while we were conducting some rapid response with the Democratic Socialists of America that broadly speaking, this is a much more this, there is more sympathetic and positive coverage of how Palestinians interact with this crisis now than there was in 2014. Uh, so, and I think that's broadly true. Um, the, the, in the coming days, we'll probably see 
even more if the Israelis continue to do what they're doing. There's um there's a British outlet that I can't remember exactly which one it is off the top of my head that has been accidentally showing a lot of the damage in Gaza because they they keep trying to show um like injured and murdered children and things like that and uh as if they were Israelis but uh they're they're posting mm-hmm. pictures of Palestinian victims and they've had to redact these photos all week. It's very bizarre very odd thing to to kind of skew and laugh at but um you know but it really shows you what's going on i, th- I think something something i just wanted to throw in here isn't even a question just kind of on my mm-hmm. brain is i, I kind of feel like something that might be happening is that uh p- part of part of the the like zionist project here like benefited from um being a third rail issue just in that people didn't talk about it very much so the obscurity kind of stops some of these conversations from happening but uh because there's just so many eyeballs on this right now it's kind of inevitable that you are someone has to talk about palestine you know yes um the i believe going back to talk about company for one second uh and uh some others who have some other Palestinians in America who have done some wonderful work in Washington, D.C. and New York. Um, a lot of them, they would tell you if you would talk to them, would say, you know, they've worked at institutions for a long time, which are designed around analyzing this conflict. And the most consistent thing about this conflict in relation to the United States is that people pay attention during the flashpoints, but those flashpoints last maybe weeks at a time and then subside. And then after those flashpoints and people return to not thinking about it at all. And I think you're correct that uh, Zionism as a political project, uh, as something that's been maintained by the Israeli state to this day, absolutely benefits from people not seeing things that are actually happening and not asking questions. But when the Israelis are themselves posting on the official accounts of the government on Twitter, blocks and blocks and blocks in Gaza that have been obliterated and they're saying that they're attacking only militants. People are going to look at those images and think, well, this this evokes images of what happened in the Ukraine or in Syria. Um, and how can it be that these are just militants? These are entire apartment blocks belonging to smithereens. Uh, and then they start asking questions. Um, and this is a conflict, this is a flashpoint that is very quickly not being a flashpoint anymore. This is going to last for a bit. Mm. And this provides an opportunity for the political left and for Palestinians and Jews who oppose the apartheid regime to say, uh, now that we're talking about this, here's how we got here in the first place. Right. Uh, here's what's actually happening. I mean, I would never underestimate, uh, you know, the masses ability to be willingly blind and the, you know, the U.S. media to manufacture consent. Um, I feel as though we're maybe kind of kind of enter in like an Iraq war era sort of thing where a lot of people are aware that it's bad, but the the wheels are already turning or something. Um, but there's hope. I think there's a, there's, we're a little bit, we're in a little bit of a different age in terms of information than we were in the Iraq war. So that might be a bright light in this. Yes, I think so. And I think it's often a push and pull um, effect with the way that media works they're, of course, overwhelmingly supporting Israel now, um, but then hopefully people will remember who said what in the last week when more and more images come out and more and more testimonies come out and think, well, why did we, why did we have such full-throated and almost 
bloodlusting support lead to this? What happened? Yeah. I hope is what will be asked. Definitely. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it mentioned Ali Belshi. I, I have to say, I, I remember a couple years ago talking to somebody who is uh, of a different generation and is a hardcore MSNBC viewer and Democrat. And she was um, really significantly influenced by just him using the word apartheid. Uh, so I think, you know, things are slowly changing it, as far as media coverage or they had been up to this point. We'll see what happens. But um, something I do have to ask about, perhaps a tendentious uh, topic, is the response from progressive to socialist elected officials. Because, of course, we have a predictable response from most of uh, American political life is is to fully full throated support of Israel. Um, but there is a, a range of response, you know, from someone like John Fetterman, who seems to be 100 uh, percent pep progressive except Palestine, uh, all the way to someone like Zoran Mandani, who's uh, assemblyman here in New York. Um, what do you rank as some of the worst responses from our supposed political allies, and, and what are some of the, the best ones this past week? Uh, well, right off the bat, I think one of the worst responses uh, comes from Elizabeth Warren, who, <laughs> um, unfortunately, uh, and I don't know if I really expected much better, but regardless of my expectations, she is probably hailed by many as to, to be the second most progressive person in the Senate. Um, whether that's true or not is a different story, but that's the perception, I think. Um and despite her moving to the left, I would say, over the last four years on Israel-Palestine, she went from not mentioning much at all during the 2020 election, during the primary, to in 2021 calling for conditioning of aid, a genuine movement, something that should have been applauded, I think, um, is instead now refraining from calling for a ceasefire, refraining from calling for a real unmitigated uh, aid corridor. Uh, she is simply calling for a minimization of casualties in Gaza. And I don't really know what that means. That's a useless term, I think. Um, whoever wrote that for her should feel ashamed. Um, it is not becoming of anyone who would consider themselves to the left of the foreign policy blob. Um, others that I would consider disappointing, perhaps not nearly as bad, would be, uh, you may have seen the letter that's circulating among House Democrats, I think 55 or up to 60 Democrats have signed, uh, facilitated, facilitated by Jayapal. Um, that letter, I think, is a step in the right direction, but notably does not mention a call for a ceasefire, notably does not condemn the siege itself. Um, these are Democrats who will position themselves, as you said, as progressive on everything but Palestine, um, and they won't actually cha challenge the parameters of the status quo. Simply calling for a minimization of casualties is, I don't even really know how I would describe that, um, not really productive, especially in a moment like this where bravery is what we need from elected officials. Uh, and then you go up from worst to, I would say, good. Uh, Bernie Sanders' response was, as expected, I hope, uh, a good one overall. He called for a ceasefire, I think, um, and uh, explicitly placed the dignity of Palestinians at the forefront. Um, and that's really 
necessary and notable, uh, especially for him as a Jewish socialist. Uh, socialist. And then we go to what I think are some of the best responses. Uh, Jamal Bowman explicitly challenged the White House. I saw uh, that. That was very cool. Yes, I uh, as a so as a I would say as an individual, I'm not going to try to represent the organization. Um, but as a Palestinian member of Democratic Socialists of America, I am very happy that he's moved a lot since the debacle in 2021, where he uh, voted to affirm sending Iron Dome replenishment to the Israelis. Um, since then, he's voted against a variety of things like supporting the Abraham Accords, and uh, he's challenged the visa waiver program agreement, and now he's using his uh, voice to challenge the White House directly. That's very good. Um, uh, according to uh, Politico, and of course Politico is sort of a Washington, D.C. gossip rag, I suppose, um, according to them, Greg Kasar challenged uh, Democrats in private about their uh, latent Islamophobia. That's something that's good to hear as someone who was disappointed with his uh, previous record on Palestine. Um, and then, of course, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cory Bush, and Rashida Tlaib, and Zohran Mandani, uh, all of these members who are Democratic Socialists, who are members of DSA, they are the ones who have been calling for an immediate ceasefire. They've been calling for an end to the occupation and a just peace. I think that's the framework of mind that we need to put forward. Uh, we can't compromise on our language. Uh, minimizing casualties is not going to cut it. An immediate ceasefire is the baseline, and they've met it and gone beyond. Uh, and so uh, I think Queen's DSA on Twitter put it best. Uh, the DSA difference is that we go further than anybody else. Well, there is a, a resolution uh, that's uh, bipartisan in the House right now that's um, calling for unconditional support of Israel. So far, there are 13 members of Congress who are not co-sponsoring it, um, includes most of the, the quote-unquote squad, but does not include people like Greg Kazar. Um, J Street, though, it was reported, is threatening Democrats that if they don't co-sponsor this resolution, which is unconditional support for what could be a genocide, uh, that they will not get the J Street endorsement. Um, for those who aren't familiar, what is J Street? And are they kind of, you know, is this kind of a mask off moment for that organization? Um, uh, first, I think it's gone, unfortunately, it's gone from 13 to 11 members in the House. Okay. Uh, Gwen Moore and uh, Representative Stansbury have both now co-sponsored that horrific bill. Um, so now we're left with 11, okay. uh, which is still all of the squad sans case. Um, but so J Street is uh, an organization that would probably bill itself as a liberal Zionist. I don't remember off the top of my head how they would say it. I think they would probably try to tell you they're pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli. Um but it's an organization that uh, is a democratic arm, so to speak. It uh, supports Democrats from Bernie Sanders down to uh, Representative uh, Jerry Nadler. Um, so a wide variety of views within that like uh, Zionist framework. 
Um, and so as a result, they they go from supporting things like conditioning aid to hailing the entry of Israel into the visa waiver program as a success. Um, and for us, of course, as socialists and for us as people who believe in Palestinian liberation, this is a very open contradiction. Um, and I think that this is the uh, organization bearing the fruit of that contradiction. Um, ultimately, it's going to choose to support Israel over the nominal human rights that they claim to have at the forefront of their mind. Um, I should say, of course, that like with any organization, there are many people who, especially the younger people, younger Jews, who uh, may have worked with J Street in the past because it's one of the more uh, mainstream organizations affiliated with democratic policy, who are now demanding something further than what J Street's demanding, which is an end to the occupation and an end to the apartheid regime. Uh, I would say this is a mask off moment. Um, I'm very happy that representatives like Bowman have thus far not caved to it. Um, and I think all I could really say is that I hope that they change their position in the future if they want to continue to claim that they're for just peace in the region. Right. Um, well, something, uh, you know, sort of on the, the lighter side a bit, although it is also pretty dark uh depending on how you look at it but there's uh, of course Rashida Tlaib has stayed uh, steadfast in holding a have a having a Palestinian flag by her office mm-hmm. and in response Republican Congressman Brian Mass was walking around with an IDF uniform I, that's exactly what I thought you were about to t- I was hoping that someone would bring it up that is um that is uh, an incredible display I've never seen something like that before um, I'm young, uh, I'm 22 and I've, I've not yet seen that's, I, I wonder if that is what many of my, uh, older peers who remember the Iraq war, I wonder if anything happened like that, like the freedom flies thing or something. I, um, I can tell you as a, as an old man now, I had a friend who actually ordered freedom fries at the red lobster and oh, that's beautiful. 2002. That is a uh, beautiful. That fact never ceases to amaze me. I, <laughs> it is it is genuine what Americans can do when faced with uh, a psychological wound like this. Yeah, um, time is a flat circle. <laughs> yes, it very much is. Uh, I've seen nonstop. I've seen people compare this to nine eleven and the hysteria afterwards, and I am I heartily believe it. Um, I can really feel that right now. The I mean, I you know I'm a little older, and I remember living through that, and it was one culturally one of the dumbest experiences of my life uh it was an incredible time and i i think it's happening again <laughs> like we can yeah, prepare yes. ourselves for some very bad music and movies and stuff like that yeah i mean uh but this guy he apparently he he did not really serve in the idf so much as volunteer <laughs> um, he's like a coast guard guy yeah basically for a few months um you know, not. I don't want to make fun of this part of it, but he did lose both of his legs in Afghanistan, uh, so he's not a full-on combatant in in Israel-Palestine. But um, I do want to ask about. You know, Talib is now receiving death threats, um, which is very serious. There was just a young Palestinian man attacked here in New York. 
uh, which is the same city where a member of our, our city council brought a gun to a Zionist counter protest. Uh, are Palestinian Americans and just anti-occupation activists here in the U.S. in general, are we in danger? Yes, I think so. Um, I will say, I think uh, you're going to have to remind me, what is the governor, the, the governor of New York, Hochul's uh, uh, response. And I think I read a wonderful piece in City and State New York, I think is the website, um, mm-hmm. uh, about this uh, statement that Hochul made. She was asked by a journalist, "What you, you've said a lot about Jewish Americans, what do you have to say to Palestinian Americans? And she had the uh, gall and the audacity to imply that we are not law-abiding or that any law-abiding Palestinian American must condemn Hamas. Um, this is a call for uh, affirming your singular loyalty to the United States. Um, I think the majority of Palestinian Americans, I think the majority of Palestinians would tell you that civilian death is a tragedy and that um, this stuff is not good. But uh, for someone to be asked a very basic question about um, any thoughts of love and solidarity to people who are also suffering, um, and to answer with demands and with implications that we are not American, um, that's disgraceful. And it's horrible that it was from the governor of one of the states with the most Arabs in the country, period, if not the most. Um, and so I think this yeah. sets the tone. I think this is why, in large part, people feel emboldened to attack Palestinian Americans. This is why they feel emboldened to... Um, send death threats to a Palestinian American congresswoman. And of, of course, um, we were saying a minute ago about how this is a sort of time as a flat circle with regards to 9-11. It's not just Palestinian Americans, it's Arabs in general, and it's also Iranians, and it's also people who are simply perceived as being Arab or Muslim. Um, this extends to various communities, and the hysteria will... Uh, lead to people dying, I think, if it's not stopped. Right. That really is the parallel that, to me, hits closest to the post-9-11 era is just the our leaders saying things like you're either with, with us or you're with them. You know, a lot has been made of George W. Bush, who, of course, gave a little shout-out to – pretty disgusting shout-out to Netanyahu this week. Um, but a lot has been made about him – uh, quote unquote, humanizing Muslims or saying it's not all Muslims who are terrorists. But if you remember at the time, he was looking at things and framing things in this very Manichaean light in a way that did trickle down and resulted in a lot of uh, terror and harassment for Muslims in the United States. Yes, um, I, I should say, actually, um, as well, that uh, I, I've seen reports from uh, legal organizations Organizations that are focused on Palestinians and Arabs and Muslims that uh, that government officials have uh, detained Arabs at the border and have um, visited mosques and this like like you said uh, this parallel to nine eleven is very striking. Um, of course, I think I think it should be said that um, Jewish Americans have a lot to fear when things are. Uh, at a flashpoint, so to speak, in the region, but um, it is also true for us. And in this sense, the government is certainly not being our friend. So, no, to no surprise, of course. Right. 
I think I, I read somewhere that the the French government has just str- flat out outlawed uh, pro Palestine events and rallies and stuff like that. So yes, and uh, in the government and uh, relatedly, um, the uh, German Social Democratic Party canceled an event with the Jewish socialist Bernie Sanders because he had the uh, audacity to demand something of Israel with regards to adherence to international law. So the European hysteria is, if you can believe it, even worse than the American. Right. Yeah. I mean, it doesn't take a historian to figure out why why Germany is is weird on on this topic, (laughs) but still is certainly so pretty uh nakedly cynical and uh, just weak to to capitulate like that um and i will say that you know it, it was kind of inspiring to see despite this law being passed in france that didn't stop several thousand it looked like uh french people taking yes i saw that it was very heartening it very much yeah. was um was well, running out here you know very few people predicted this offensive uh like two weeks ago um, so it's it's hard to look to the future, but what are some of the potential outcomes to this that you can foresee? Um, I think that we are at a moment where things are almost impossible to predict. Uh, with regards to the political situation, I think that it is almost certain that the PA is on its way out. That is the Palestinian Authority, uh, ran by Abbas and Ramallah. Um, and that this helps explain a lot of why this happened in the first place. Um, Hamas, the Islamic Jihad, um, the DFLP, the PFLP, all of these groups are looking at a post-Oslo order, so to speak, and what the relationship is going to be like Within that, um, the the collapse of the PA will almost certainly mean more violence and more armed struggle than we've seen in decades, unless stopped by the international community. And given the uh, lackluster history, to say the least, of the international community's capacity to stop anything... Um, it does not look very good. On the flip side, we do have contours of hope. Um, organizations like Hadash Tal, uh, which is a coalition of parties led by the Communist Party, a predominantly Arab party in Israel, and Standing Together, which is a jointly Jewish and Palestinian organization, are making their calls louder than ever that the end of apartheid and the end of the occupation are the only ways to end this cycle of revenge and violence. And if members of the Knesset like Ofer Kassif and Ayman Ode can stand in front of the legislature of this regime and say no to Jewish supremacy and no to Palestinian supremacy and yes to democracy, I think uh, everybody in the United States can as well. And if that's something that we can learn from this and make it our central demand, then I think the the outcome can be better than what it might be. Um, and, and last question, uh, what can Americans and the broader international left do to help 
Palestinians as well as end this brutal occupation? Um, a couple of things. Uh, first and foremost, I think your money would be greatly appreciated to the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. Uh, I'm currently running a drive myself, but uh, any donation in general to that organization will be plenty of help. Um, call your congressman. Uh, every single one of these people who has an office is a lot more sensitive to pressure from constituents than you actually imagine. Um, if we are able to show that there are people watching, that there are people who are ready to withdraw their votes or vote for opposition, if they fail at this moment, then they may bend the pressure on the margins or even further than that. Um, there's a phone banking happening with New York and Metro DC DSA. Um, they are currently pressuring hard for people, not just in the squad, but across the political left in the United States, so to speak, to uh, refrain from supporting military aid to Israel. Um, and I would say as a socialist, uh, an unorganized socialist is just a liberal. And so if you are not in an organization yet, then you should join one. I'm a member of Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, you may not, you don't have to join that one in particular, but I think it's a organization that is clearly fighting for Palestinian liberation. And we need as many people as we can get. All right. Well, we will uh, put the link to that uh, children's fund in the comment, in the uh, show description, uh, as well as the phone bank. I mean, this, we'll try to get this out uh, this weekend. Uh, but Layla, thank you so much for joining us. We're, we're hoping and praying that any loved ones and family members you have are, are safe uh, in the Palestinian territories. Um, is there anywhere our listeners uh, can find you and your work? Uh, I am Emissary of Night on Twitter, and uh, I will uh, all my writings there. So thank you very right. much. Thank you for having me uh, here today. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Yes.